Hi guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Green Dragon Podcast. I'm your host, Aiden. And your fellow host, Tom. And your fellow host, Jake. Well, this is part three of the Civil War. Um, and today we're going to be covering the South's last stand and then repairing a war-torn nation, what happens after the war. Uh, last week, if you haven't listened to last week's podcast, you should probably go listen to that one. Um, and last week we talked about battles from Fort Sumter to Getty. So we covered a lot of ground last week. And if you listen to last week's podcast, you're like, oh, I want to learn a lot more about a specific battle, then I would highly recommend you go check out Jocko's podcast. We left that in the show notes um, of our show, just so you guys could have some more reference. We listened to that. We really enjoyed that. They, Jocko and JD went into really, really, really like detailed descriptions of each battle. So that was a great resource. If you're, you want to get into the nitty gritty of the battles, um, cause I think they did a very good job. So yeah, today we're going to start, um, after the battle of Gettysburg, obviously, and the North is now kind of split into two campaigns. And Ulysses S. Grant is now the commander of the Union Army. And so he takes half of the army and then he goes to the, the east, what's considered the east along the coast. And then he sends Sherman out to what's considered the western front. I don't know why it was western. I mean, he sent it down to Georgia, which isn't the, all that west, but it was considered the western kind of the Western attack to crush the South. Um, and Sherman's goal is to come in from the West and then eventually kind of swoop in and make it to Savannah, Georgia. And that's, we, we now uh, kind of know that is Sherman's March to Sea. So the March to Sea, in order for Sherman to get there, his his main objective uh, is to crush the lifeline of the South, of the Confederate States, and that's Atlanta. Um, now, Atlanta is next to, I would say next to Richmond, is probably the um, biggest sort of manufacturing um, hub. It's you know, as far as the rail lines go, it is the hub of the South. Um, so it's a, a big logistical center as far as transporting troops and weapons and all that via rail. So if Sherman can cut cut that um, that lifeline to the Confederate Army off, he's in pretty good shape. So. Yeah, so Grant assigns his friend Sherman uh, to command the 5th against Joseph E. Johnston of the Confederacy. And Johnston was charged with defending Atlanta. Um, and 
like I said, Atlanta was actually the is the junction of all four railroads at the time. Um, so anything connected to or anything east of the Mississippi is really connected by, in Atlanta. So this comes to a point um, because Atlanta is the objective. Sherman starts marching marching down and uh, Sherman begins his assault on Atlanta by fighting uh, Johnston and each mile he gets closer to Atlanta the fighting kind of picks up and so the armies clash um, at a few different places before this battle we're going to talk about which is the battle of Kennesaw Mountain but you know, the armies clash at New Hope Church, then Pickett's Mill, and, and then Marietta. And it actually, if you go to Marietta today, um, you can see the National Cemetery and uh, a lot of the fallen from the war are actually buried at this, uh, at this cemetery. It's a pretty, I've been there. It's a pretty neat place. I actually have a, I don't even know, what he would be technically. I think he's like a great, like far removed cousin. A great, like great, 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 like third cousin or something like that. And he actually fought and died at the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain. Um, and he's buried in the in the Marietta National Cemetery. So we went and found his gravestone, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so so they're they're fighting, the armies keep clashing. And Johnson, or Johnston, was a very defensive commander. And so he, over the course of these battles, he, he really didn't, I wouldn't say he fully engaged Sherman's army. Um, so he would, you know, bring his army in, kind of withdraw, um, use flanking maneuvers. And so this comes to a head at Kennesaw Mountain. Now, Kennesaw Mountain is, if you're looking at the Atlanta area, is pretty, pretty strategic, right? Because Kennesaw Mountain has two things. Actually, today, I, I've been to Kennesaw Mountain several times. So if you're driving in to Kennesaw Mountain, you actually go through it's right it's really close to Marietta um, but you actually in order to get to the national uh, battlegrounds you actually have to cross the railroad now this is where the railroads located at it's located right next to Kennesaw Mountain and so if you control the mountain you pretty much control the railroad um, so it's a pretty big deal So, obviously, Sherman wants to get a hold of it. Johnston wants to protect those that railroad. And so, that's why, and that's why you know, this is kind of the spot that, you know, Sher or Sherman meets Johnston. And Johnston actually uses Kennesaw Mountain as this very good defensive point. Because the other thing about Kennesaw Mountain is it's like the tallest freaking place in like a 50 mile radius 
it's only 25 miles from downtown Atlanta, and it sits at about 1,800 feet above sea level. It stands out. The thing pops right. I mean, you you drive up to this thing, it it pops right up out of the um, out of the landscape. I actually got a picture. I took this from when I first moved down to Atlanta. I um, I took this picture while I was driving up. I don't know if you guys can see this here, but this is this is about a mile out from. Uh, from the mountain, but you're driving up, and actually the railroad is not too far from this Brown National Park site. You guys see that? So, yeah, as you can see, this. Um, this, this mountain really comes out of the landscape. So if you have control of this mountain, you've got a pretty good advantage of everything that's going around, and you've got a great defensive position. Um, so as far as that goes, it's a, it's a pretty, and the other thing about it, it's a pretty wooded mountain on most of the, most of the sides, but Jake knows this. Jake's hiked with me there. Um, yeah, it's also steep. As it's, well, it's I know uh, a quarter of the way up, I was I was already getting winded. So, yeah, I can't imagine carrying a rifle, um, all your gear, cannons. Um, it's it's yeah, it's not not convenient. Let's just say that to uh, be on the attacking side of it. Absolutely, yeah. Not only that, but there's just like big like. I mean, as you're walking up this, there's just big boulders. Um, here's, actually, I've got a couple other pictures here I'll share um, if you're watching this because I think it just kind of gives you an idea. It's not in it's 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 not just like an easy wooded mountain. Uh, I mean, so it's wooded. There's these big. I don't know if you can kind of see that there, but there's these big massive boulders uh, and rock formations, and so it's really a defensive paradise. Um, here's another picture. So this is the, the view from the top of the mountain. So you've got this big, big rocky top up here. You can kind of see out. This is actually um, out out towards um, this area over here. That's where Marietta is at. So yeah, you can see um, pretty much 360 views up there. It's, it's a pretty, if, if you were looking for a place near Atlanta, to, to make your camp, this is the place to do it. And so Johnston, you know, he drags, they still have the cannons up there to this day. He drags up a bunch of cannons to the top of the mountain and uh, and, they, and they make their home. They, they make all these defensive positions. They really dig, dig themselves in. And he has, let me just make sure I'm telling you guys where I think, but I believe, yeah. He has a seven-mile front that's shaped as um, it's pretty much it's kind of like a a C shape, um, a, like a crescent shape, and so he's got this seven-mile front, and Sherman's like, you know what? 
I think eventually, you know, things come to a head. And Sherman's like, no, I think we can break through this front. And so he knows it's going to be a bloodbath. So he, he doesn't send all of his men to this, but he sends a, a decent, decent amount of them. And he, the, from, from the research I did, the lives that were lost on this were not as many as some of the other bloody battles. Um, the Union Army ends up suffering about a loss of 4,000 men, which is still significant for a day of fighting. But the men that fought in this battle compared it to the, the level of... Um, like the level of intensity um, to Gettysburg. And wow. and a lot of the men that fought this thought it was more intense than Gettysburg. And a lot of them thought, and I think even Sherman realized this after the battle, if he had sent more men, like on the second day, or had sent men, more men the first day, the losses would have been much heavier and this would have been a battle that had the the losses and the devastation to his army that Gettysburg did, or uh, the Battle of Seven Pines. Um, so, you know, this one, I think this, I think a lot of people forget about the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain because it just it doesn't carry the the large number of, number of casualties um, that you usually saw with big battles that were important. But this one's very important because if Sherman knew Sherman knew this too, if he could take Kennesaw Mountain, it was gonna be easy walking into Atlanta. And once he took Atlanta, he knew that the rest of the South, his his march through the rest of Georgia to Savannah was going to be easy. So yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what happened here. Now, um, how this ended probably was not what Sherman intended. This battle, um, the Union attack failed. They fought really hard, but um, you know when you've got. Uh, even a smaller Confederate army dug into this mountain and dug into the landscape with their, even, you know, their full seven miles. They had that heavily fortified. They really dug into the trenches and, um, you know, they, John, uh, Johnson's men did not let Sherman, his men, you know, through. Um, so that forced Sherman actually to maneuver his force after losing that day of battle around Johnson's left flank, um, and that pushed the Confederates to Atlanta to protect the city. So it's really, I mean, I think it's one of those battles that could have, I think if Sherman would have tried to keep fighting, or, or yeah, I think if Sherman would have kept tried to keep fighting here, I think it really could have impaired his ability later to take the city of Atlanta. I don't think he would have had the fighting force. I think he would have lost a lot, a lot more men.
Yeah, because after Kennesaw, then it's a direct invasion of Atlanta, right? Yeah, I mean, from there, so, yeah, by early July, because, so the Battle of Kennesaw, um, this was fought, I'm going to get my dates wrong here, but, no, it was, it was, it was late June, early July, I believe, um, so, I mean, it's, the other thing you got to take into account here is it's hot. They don't call it hot Lanta. They, they don't call it hot Lanta for any reason. I mean, it gets hot. And I think during the Battle of Kennesaw, they recorded temperatures of like 110 degrees. So you think about 110 degrees in these wool uniforms. It's like muggy and probably super high humidity. And you're fighting for day. You know, I mean, you're. You're, you're marching and you're marching and you finally get to Kennesaw Mountain and then you got to fight and then you got to keep marching and try to make it another 25 miles to Atlanta getting shot at. I mean, that's that's intense, intense heat, intense weather. So you had that going against Sherman too at this point. Um, but what goes well, and I forgot to mention this, Johnston, you know, the Confederate commander, he's not very well liked by his uh, president and, and and so and so all of a sudden um, Johnston you know he sends a message over to Richmond he's like hey you know we fought this battle and it went well and we, we pushed back the uh, the Union troops you know he's kind of talking it up because it's really the first thing Johnston's Johnston's done here, and and Jefferson Davis is like, yeah, you're gone, and he replaces him with um, a guy of by the name of uh, John B. Hood, so Lieutenant General John B. Hood. So all of a sudden, John B. Hood's thrown in, and I think that was the wrong move by Jefferson Davis because John B. Hood was just. He he was he he could command men, but he just wasn't the guy that was gonna beat Sherman. And Sherman kind of knew that because remember, all these guys went to West Point, so <laughs> they all know each other. And so Sherman's like Sherman's like I don't know Johnston. Johnston's really giving a good fight. J J Johnston, you know, wasn't aggressive, and that's why Jefferson Davis didn't like him. And he was really defensive. I think if he if Jefferson Davis would have let Johnston do his thing. I think Sherman honestly could have lost more men and possibly not done the damage he did in Georgia. Um, but that's just a, a hypothetical. So anyways, it doesn't matter because Jefferson Davis doesn't think Johnston's the guy. He replaces him with John B. Hood on July 18th. So, you know, within days. And Hood launches two attacks on Sherman. One at uh, Peachtree Creek on July 20th, and the other along the Georgia Railroad, known, and this is what's known as the Battle of Atlanta on July 22nd. And both of them, Hood loses to, to, um, to Sherman. So by September, Atlanta's fallen, and there goes your industrial hub and your rail line and you know kind of you're you're working um 
you know, if you had any infrastructure, it's, if you had any, you know, factories, it's pretty much gone now. If you're the, if you're the Confederates, I mean, you've got Richmond, but that's all you got. And, um, you lost the majority of your rail control because Atlanta's gone. Um, and one of the things, actually, you can see this when you go to, uh, the, the national battlegrounds at Kennesaw, what Sherman would do and his men would do as they took, took out the, took out the, um, you know, rails, uh, when they, when they gained controls, they would actually go in and they do this thing where they, it was called like a, like a bow tie and they tie, they heat up and tie the rail, um, the metal rails of the rail line. So they, they couldn't reuse them or they couldn't bend them back. I'll see if I can, I don't know, Jake, do you think you can find a picture maybe? It's, I think it's called like a union, I think it was the union bow tie method, where they basically just go in and tear up the rails and, and tie them up, so. Yeah, I should have it somewhere. I know I looked it up when I uh, when I was researching for this podcast, so. Sherman? Give me a minute here. Okay, yeah, no worries. I'll, I'll keep going on Sherman. Sherman was a, he was an interesting guy. Sherman was, Sherman was in it, and he was going to, he was, his goal with this campaign was to, I think it's, I think I've got it written down here. He's got a quote and I was just like, uh, oh, here we go. Yeah. So Sherman said, um, it was necessary to, cause they came in and as they came through Georgia during his March to see his point that he wanted to drive home to all these citizens. He was trying to scare the citizens. Georgia so they would surrender and um, so as they went they would um, steal food and livestock they burn houses and barns for the uh, people that would try to fight back um, and he said uh, that they needed to make old and young rich and poor feel the hand of war so sherman sherman was like a no joke like it was he was gonna let him know exactly you know what this war was about so he was kind of a little crazy i think um and a little crazy yeah he, he was he was a little out of control um but yeah, so that was the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain. So, yeah, so like I said, once Atlanta's down, Hood 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 loses Atlanta. Um, he loses a large portion of the the Confederate army to Sherman, and Hood and Sherman continued to battle. Um, and, and after, you know, there was kind of a few skirmishes and then, um, after he lost Atlanta, the Confederate army, put the Confederate army headed west towards Tennessee and Alabama. And what they did is they would attack the union supply lines and try to just, they basically were trying to cause a nuisance. Um, 
And Sherman was like, well, he was reluctant to set off on a wild goose chase after Hood. Um, but he actually splits his troops into two. And this is an interesting thing. So Sherman is going to do his march to sea. But then he sends Major General George Thomas, and George Thomas takes about 60,000 men to go fight the Confederates in Nashville. And Sherman takes the remaining 62,000 men, and he goes on the offensive march through Georgia to Savannah. Smackman, this is his quote, smash, to go smashing things to the sea. Um, I think Sherman just liked to break shit. <laughs> like, you know that, you know that kid that, like, likes to just, you know, like, throw stuff and break stuff? I think that was Sherman as a child. He was just, like, he didn't like anybody very much, it seemed. He just liked to break stuff. Uh, <laughs> but, so, his march to sea, Sherman's march to sea, um, was, it it was a solid month. It went from November 15th to December 21st. And he led his, you know, 62,000 men on the 285 miles from Atlanta to Savannah, Georgia. And like I said, the purpose of Sherman's march to sea was to frighten the Georgia civilian population into abandoning the Confederate cause. And Sherman soldiers, you know, as they went through towns, at least he had the decency um, to not destroy the towns in their path uh, unless they fought back. But, you know, like I said, he was still stealing food and livestock. Um, and then if they fought back, he'd burn their houses and barns. And so, I mean, he, this wasn't, you know, all... It wasn't like he was going through, like, being all nice most of the time. But one of the things he did, especially in the Atlanta region, and if you're in, a, you know, in the Atlanta region now, you can go and see a lot of these places, is his mission was, okay, before we leave Atlanta, we need to make sure their industrial infrastructure is shut down. And what's the best way to shut that down? It's to go through a burn <laughs> So, so he just went through, and he was like, "Paper mill, burn it down. Uh, you know, textile mill, burn it down." Um, and then he would take, you know, a lot of the. If you go to a lot of these places, women and children primarily work there, and, and slaves also work there as well. But all of them were then, um, all the women and children were actually then sent to the like POW camps up north. They were marched up north and then after the war they were kind of you know released back to their homes. Um but that's I mean there's so many ruins down here. Um it, it's crazy. There's so many by my house. So I've got a, a lot of pictures here. I just want to kind of give you guys an idea um of like all these ruins because it is it's crazy. Um, pull up the screen here. Okay. So I'll try to do a quick run through for you guys. 
So this one that I'm gonna pull up here is, this is actually the view from, as you're walking up, you walk up and you see this waterfall. Now this waterfall look, might look like a natural waterfall, but once you get up closer, you actually realize this is a dam, um, a hand-built dam. So actually underneath this waterfall, this whole waterfall is actually bricks. Um, so they dammed this up to create um, like, uh, and I'll show you guys another picture here. Um, what they did is they dammed this all up so that the, they could have the mill water and it created you know better water pressure for the mill and they had this giant wheel so like here if you can kind of see that you had the dammed up creek here and this creek actually runs into the the main river the Chattahoochee River but you can see it's it's all dammed up with these bricks they they created that and yeah you go there today and here's some more pictures of the ruins there's just these ruins sitting in the woods and what happened is, you know, as Sherman and his men were marching through, here's actually the mechanics of the mill. So they've actually got some of the old machinery. Um, this is the actual mill itself. This one, I believe, was a textile mill. Um, this is in Roswell, Georgia. There's another picture of the, let me see here. You guys can see this one here. So this is old textile mill. Um, it's pretty neat because, like, you literally go stand in this. This is another portion of the machinery in the mill. Um, so it's really, really interesting to just, I mean, this is, like, five minutes down the street from me. Um, you can just go stand, like, just walk around there. Uh, but there's there's these, these the mill ruins are scattered everywhere. Um, and it's... It's kind of eerie there um, when you're at these places because it's just, it, it seems like, you know, you wonder what actually went on there, kind of the stories and all that, but it's it's a, it's an interesting place. So here's a, yet another one. This is about 15 minutes away from me. This is the Soap Creek Road. This was actually... Um, you can actually go and climb in these ruins. It's crazy. Um, so this was a bigger one. This was actually a paper mill. And they, all these are built along these creeks that ran into the Chattahoochee because they used the water power. Um, but, I mean, these were everywhere. Here's a, here's a, a up close. Um, so these are impressive structures. So what they did is, you know, they couldn't destroy the stone. They would burn them um, because, you know, there was a lot of, they used a lot of wood in the construction. Days, so they burnt everything they could. They uh they basically deconstructed all the mill parts, so they tried to break it, um, so it was unusable. So this is yet yet another one. This is uh, Sweetwater Creek. This is that one I was telling you guys about a few weeks ago where um, they had a sign really close to this one here. Um, this is a good picture. You can kind of see it. This is a big one, and this is another textile mill. But the um, the sign said every one of these bricks that you see and that that help help this or, you know built this structure were made and laid by the hands of slaves. So you look at all those bricks and it, it's just kind of this sense of 
you're there and you're like, wow. It's this really heavy feeling that you get um, when you see these, I mean, still intact after, you know, 150 years, all these, all these bricks that, you know, were, were laid with, by the hands of slaves. Uh, just, it's a really eerie type of feeling. But yeah, the Atlanta area, there's so many of these mill ruins, and this is what Sherman was doing as he was as he was going along on his march to the sea. But at, before he left Atlanta, he wanted to make sure their infrastructure was not going to come back anytime soon. So that was Sherman's main goal, disabling the manufacturing arm of the South. And uh, he, did a, he did a pretty good job at that. Just before we leave that topic, I did find a picture of uh, mm. Sherman, Sherman's necktie, is what they ah, call it. A necktie. Um, okay, I was wrong there. It was Sherman's necktie. Let me. Of course they named here. I'll. Uh, I'll uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course they named it after Sherman. It's fitting. <laughs> yeah, let me pull this up here. Okay, if you guys can see that. Um, there we go. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. This was, they would relate. Um, what's the word? Disfigure it this way so that, um, like no one, no one could, it wouldn't be reusable since iron was already becoming so scarce at that point. Um, and yeah, typically it would be tied around a tree is what I, what I gathered from that. Um, just to make it, make the process that much harder. So not only would you have to cut down the tree, but then you'd have to take this big hunk of metal down to your local blacksmith and hope that he could straighten that bad boy out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just, we would take up more time than probably what was reasonable for an army that was already retreating to try to, try to repair yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, no wonder the no wonder the uh, the southern states hated the north for so long. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Sherman. It was Sherman's fault. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the amount of damage is uh, well, you think, pretty, yeah. pretty pretty uh, staggering. Yeah, I know. We'll get to that in a little bit on the rebuilding aspect, but you look at the the, the they basically crippled the economy. Or any ability for that economy to bounce back, and it it really took a toll on the South. So, yeah, I can understand why there's a, a tad bit of animosity there, or there was for a long period of time, because you know, from a strategic standpoint, I do understand what Sherman and the North was trying to do to keep, you know, kind of um, stop that stop that um yeah that that um the ability to attack but at the same time yeah, it had a it had a pretty big effect so yeah, so Sherman's March to Sea. Um, Sherman eventually makes it to Savannah, Georgia, um, leaving behind him a pretty big 
wake of pretty big wake of um, destruction, and so. that that kind of concludes the the um, conquest of the west um, now out in the east uh, about four months later uh, the Federals trap Confederate general Robert E Lee near Appomattox Courthouse. And Robert E. Lee surrenders to Union General Ulysses S. Grant. And this ends the bloodiest conflict of American fought on American soil. So how did you know how did how did Lee get trapped here? Well Lee's final campaign began on March 25th, 1865, with the Confederate attack on Fort Stedman near Petersburg. And General Grant's forces counterattacked a week later on April 1st at Five Forks, forcing Lee to abandon Richmond and Petersburg the following day. The Confederate Army retreated, uh, moving south along the Richmond Danville Road, heavily outnumbered by the Union troops and low on supplies, Lee was in dire trouble. Nevertheless, he um, led a series of grueling night marches, hoping to reach supply trains in Farmville, Virginia, and eventually join Johnston in North Carolina. Remember, Johnston headed east after escaping from Atlanta. Um, Union troops captured the valuable supplies at Farmville on April 7th. On April 8th, the Confederates discovered their army was blocked by federal cavalry. Confederate commanders tried to break through the cavalry screen, hoping the horsemen were unsupported by other troops, but of course they weren't, and Grant, Grant had anticipated this attempt to escape. Um, rather than destroy his army and sacrifice the lives of his soldiers with no purpose, Lee decided to surrender the Army of Northern Virginia. Three days later, a formal ceremony marked the disbanding of Lee's army and parole of his men, ending the war in Virginia. Grant and Lee agreed um, the Grant-Lee Agreement served not only as a signal that the South had lost the war, but also as a model for the rest of surrenders that followed. And that was the end of the Northern Virginia Army that really, for the first half of the war, looked like they might have, might have had it in the back. What do you guys think? Yeah, I agree. I think uh, if you just look at the leadership quality, um, the Union was extremely disorganized. A lot of uh, incompetent generals, I think, came and went before they really were able to find their core core group with Grant and Sherman. Um, but yeah, I mean, you started out going up against 
Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee. I mean, those are two of yeah. the best. Yeah, long, strategists long, and, yeah, yeah, in long. history, not not even just American history. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, initially, but I think it really came down to uh, the natural resources and the fact that the federal army was able to rely on the supply chains, um, whereas the Confederates needed to live off of the land, which eventually um, would run out <laughs> the longer the longer the war was prolonged so i think that's really really what it uh came down to yeah i was i was listening to um the last part of jocko's series um, battle of gettysburg and i think like once stonewall got killed it seemed like lee kind of lost his his mojo almost like he seemed like he was on a like he knew that Stonewall had a lot of good ideas so he listened to Stonewall hear his idea and then plan accordingly when he left or when he died it seemed like Lee was kind of in a shell shock he wasn't sure the best way to attack or defend so he would go with some of his tried and true things but then try to do new stuff kind of like to imitate Jackson almost like the on day three of Gettysburg when he decides to march his twelve thousand men through the fog and attack the Union head on, Longstreet said this won't work and he asked almost begged him to say no, but Lee didn't even heed to any of his advice and just went away. Went and did it anyway. And kinda of like I think that's what really crushed the Confederate Army because before then they always knew Lee had their back. But then when they kind of went on a suicide mission, I think that's when things started to really fall apart. And with Meade getting a good victory like that, and with all of the stories of the Union soldiers, like the 1st Minnesota Division that attacked like a thousand Confederates, and they had like 250 guys. And they broke, almost broke through and they lost like 80% of their guys. That really shook up the Confederate confidence. And that happened in a few spots where it was like little detachments of the Union putting the Confederate head on and almost winning. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of like when you watch a football game and you're seeing one underdog team for a while doing really well, and then they lose their, their gusto. And the other side just kind of like picks up the lost yards and wins. So, yeah, I, I really, it's, and it boils down to it, just like the leadership. It's good calls and bad calls, which makes you wonder too if, if both sides are making the best calls all the time, how it would have panned out. I bet it would have been a lot shorter war, actually. Because it seemed like a lot of the, time was enveloped in trying to restructure the armies after they got defeated yeah and if you look at, at the beginning of the war one of the, the the things that really stood out to me was the chance mcclellan had at the very beginning of the war to crush the south i think he could have done it in the first 90 days like they expected but mcclellan of course like we talked about was really in it for himself and and um yeah and that ended up costing, I think, the Union greatly. 
And so, yeah, I think you're totally right. I think if both sides would have played their best game from the start, it would have been a completely different war and might have had a a, a less um, a less uh, taken a less of a toll or as far as life's lost. Yeah, it seems like at the beginning, neither side really wanted to take shots at the other side. And so they're just kind of like seeing what was going to happen. But then it seemed like after the Battle of Shiloh, things started to get ugly. And then um, later on in the years, it seemed like they didn't really care anymore about people. They just were like, let's just... They're so angry at what was happening, they just wanted to destroy everything. And that just made everything worse overall. And like, it seemed like it kind of brought up the worst of both sides. Because like, Jack was talking about the POW camps and how horrific they were. And like, just the ways things degraded so quickly. It seems like if it could have been like, Almost like if the clown did walk up and with his army, it's possible the Confederates would have been like, um, it's not really worth all the lives lost, we'll just surrender now. So, but it's also interesting too, because if the Confederates didn't attack Fort Sumter, it's possible that could have been like a discussion that would have solved all the problems instead of a war. Yeah, and it's also possible if they didn't, you know, attack Fort Sumter or make that first initial attack on the north, Lincoln might not have gotten the buy-in from the northern states to do this and had that backing, had the men coming to to serve in the Union Army. So, yeah, this could have it could have gone so many different ways. When you look at this, it's just. Um, it is a you do kind of wish it would have panned out a little bit differently because it, the war was so I think devastating um, you know to that to that generation to that population and that and that um, devastation you know lasted for a good hundred years at least, and I think still lingers a little bit today. Um, I don't think the wounds have totally healed there, so. Well, yeah, I mean, every time you walk by a ruin, you're just reminded of it. It makes you dislike the other side a little bit. So I think it's in the same way with like Germany because they still have like active minefields and things like that. Mm that people can't go into mm -hmm. so you're like always reminded of what happened or like buildings that still have bullet holes in them to this day mm -hmm. and stuff like that it's just always a constant reminder yeah can't escape it yeah yeah it's a you know obviously this war has really shaped in a very profound way, American history. Um, and more than most people realize. And I think um, 
a lot of the issues that we feel like we're just facing for the first time today. If we look back, a lot of those were being those same types of feelings and issues uh, were, were being dealt with back then as well. I think in that sense, history has kind of repeated itself. It reminds me of what Alexis de Tocqueville said in his book, that there were always and only ever be two parties in America, one that's for freedom and one that's against freedom. And it's interesting because both sides had different forms of freedom they were fighting for. And like the South wanted state freedom, the North wanted individual freedom. And it seemed like individual freedom was better. But then at the same time, they tried to use it to build up the federal government, which has been causing lots of problems. So it's just a tough situation. Yeah, I think it was one of the few cases where I think both sides had a little bit of truth to the freedom they were fighting for. And that's what made this, I think that's what still makes this war interesting because you look at it and you're like, I, I get where they were coming from on that, but I don't like what they were doing there on both sides. And um, and so it, it really does make you sit there and think about it. Like, huh, like I wonder what I would have done, you know? Um, because I think there's valid and invalid points to each side's kind of what, you know, their, their why. And, and so it is interesting to look at that because a lot of times when you see these, you know, when there's a, when there's a group for freedom or against freedom, it's kind of cut and dry. And like, I mean, like, I don't think anybody out there is like, yeah, Hitler, that's, that's, that's somebody I want to get behind, you know, I don't think anybody's out there doing that. And if you are, <laughs> um, but, you know, like, I, I think that one's pretty cut and dry. Like, I don't, I'm not getting behind anything that Hitler, the Nazis and the Axis powers were promoting. Um, it's pretty easy to get behind the allies and, and what they were fighting for there. Um, but a lot of times it's it's that it's black and white and you know the good and the bad there was so much i think there was just yeah i think there was valid points to each side of this um on each side had their like yeah we should probably have less federal and this was even something to talk about after the war they were like you know the federal government too much federal government's not a good thing and that's why the South, you know, uh, one of the main reasons the South seceded. They didn't like the overstepping imperialistic sort of approach the federal government was taking, impeding on states' rights. So it's centralized government. I mean, that makes sense to me, but then the whole slavery thing, you're like, hmm. Yeah, I don't get behind that. Um, and then on the northern side, you know, like, okay, yeah, we're fighting for, you know, the end of slavery. But then also, 
now we're fighting for a more centralized government i don't know so it's it's very confusing i struggle with it all the time it's it's really tough yeah it's it's always hard to imagine like what the individual soldier's conscience was like like you know like it seems like when you're fighting like in world war ii if you're fighting hitler or the axis alliance then you are pretty safe because you're like well these guys are trying to hurt a lot of people so i know i'm saving people by stopping them or like other tyrannical governments and things here you're like well we're my brothers and we're not really fighting over something as obvious as that we have to think about what we're fighting for because the slavery issue didn't really come up till kind of in the middle of the war and when lincoln decided that he should try to end it now instead of waiting until after the war so yeah i think we just have to pray for all those people retroactively to think about yeah i don't know it's rough because it's like you're dealing with people's lives in a war it's not like you're on a video game and <clears throat> if you lose it's not a big deal but here it's like there's some really big consequences here yeah yeah and we can get to those consequences in a second here um just talk about you know what happened after the war but i think we should briefly touch on this um so five days after the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, April 14th, 1865, Ford's Theater, President Lincoln is shot and killed by John Wilkes Booth, and um, yeah, it's a, you know, you coming out of the war and unions look it looks like you know they've won and that's a pretty big hit to take and um so yeah president lincoln ends up dying um and i think this is another you know even though it's after the surrender it's another i think big point to or key point to the war We'll try to cover this more in depth in another podcast. We're going to do a podcast on Lincoln. So we can get, get into it there. I thought we'd just mention it very quickly, though, because it does fit in that timeline pretty well. Um, so after the war, the war is over. It's time to rebuild. Um, let's just talk a little bit about the devastation here. As far as cities go. 11 cities in the South were destroyed or suffered massive damages. And just to name a few of the big ones, Richmond, Virginia, Charleston, South Carolina, Atlanta, and Columbia, South Carolina. Um, according to the 1860 census, these cities were home to 115, 116,000 individuals or 14% of the entire population of the urban South. That's a pretty big number. 
So you've got these cities that are destroyed. People are homeless. Um, don't have many places to go. On top of this, the north destroyed, like we said, railroads, mills, factories, burned farms. And they uh, left this wake of destruction kind of behind them. And the southern economy was left in shambles. And if you look at the south today, I would venture to argue that in some places, the south might you know, I don't think has fully recovered as far as the economy goes in all these places. I don't think um, some of these places just never really got back to what they were in, in 1860 um, and 1865. So war had a pretty profound effect on southern cities and their and their population. And then just talk a little bit of lost lives here. Um, so the Civil War was America's bloodiest conflict. And nearly as many men died in captivity during the Civil War. Tom speaking about, you know, that the POW camps. Um, as were killed in the whole Vietnam War. Just to put that into perspective. Hundreds died of disease. Um, roughly 2% of the population, an estimated 620,000 men, lost their lives in the line of duty. So if you were to take that into percentages of today's population, be roughly about 6 million people. That's pretty, pretty insane. Six million. So you think about, you know, that's a lot of these men were, you know, between the ages of like 18 and probably like 35. So that's a, a good portion of the male population at that time was pretty much wiped out. Um, another thing that happened during this time or post-war is obviously you have the emancipated slaves, so the freed slaves. So after the massive devastation of the Civil War, it was um, this that that time period that the U.S. had to rebuild itself. It was 1865 to 1875, 77, somewhere around there. It's known as a Reconstruction period, but during that time, one of the big issues was, you know, what what happens to the freed slaves and unfortunately they were taken advantage of in many cases um thousands of freed slaves were not accepted anywhere and struggled to find new homes um, some were arrested for charges of vagrancy and um, oftentimes you know this was taken advantage of and so if you were arrested, then you could, you know, according to the law, you could be then forced to serve um, this kind of slave labor because you were arrested, <laughs> you were in, in prison. So a lot of these slaves were then imprisoned and then 
used for free labor. Um, and then if, if that didn't happen, others starved or died of diseases because they had nowhere to go. Um, and they had no sort of support. Um, so it's, that is kind of like the unspoken, you know, it's great that they were freed, but even the abolitionists at the time didn't want to talk about what was happening to the emancipated slaves because it made them look like the cause they had fought for wasn't worth it because you had all these slave, uh, you know, freed slaves dying of disease and starvation. Um, pretty intense. Uh, the Republicans wanted full legal citizenship for the freed slaves and the southerners in many cases wanted to segregate the freed slaves from the white population so this is what really caused the race divisions amongst the communities leading to obviously groups like the kkk um, and other white supremacist groups so this is where a lot of that racial division comes from is once the slaves were freed, they didn't have any place to go and they weren't welcomed in into the um, into the communities in the South. And they really they there was no place for them to kind of fit into society. And you got to think about it. This, too, is like a lot of these men and women and children had lived on a plantation their whole life. They didn't know anything outside of that. So a lot of them went back to work for the the plantations that they were slaves at others you know farmed because it was the only thing they knew how to do they, they didn't know a life outside of farming but you know then you had to get land or do share crop uh, uh and you know it, it just didn't it wasn't a, a good you know sort of reassimilation re into society there was no there was no real program in place. And unfortunately, it caused a large population of the freed slaves to, to die. So that's kind of the unspoken horror of what happened after, you know, we like to talk about, oh, yeah, we freed the slave, you know, Lincoln freed the slaves and the North saw good for this. But then there was nothing really in place after. So they just kind of were left to fend for themselves. Um, so as I was reading that, I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty intense. I mean, it's pretty discouraging to, to hear that and um, not see a lot. I mean, like when you have even the abolitionists that fought for the slaves the whole war that are just kind of keeping their mouth shut after the war because they're too afraid to look like they screwed up and not actually going out and helping people. I mean, that's pretty sad. Um, yeah, I don't know. A lot of, a lot of, um, yeah, there was just a lot of, I think after the war, whether it was the free, you know, the freed slaves, uh, trying to find their, their place in, in, Amer in American life and American society, the loss of lives from the war or the rebuilding of the cities and the economy in the South. There's just a lot of, um, I think there was a lot of division and, and hatred still, um, animosity. And 
that kind of carried and never really repaired itself for years. I mean, it took, I mean, think about that. It took almost a, a hundred years after the, um, the end of the war for there to be even a movement towards the rebuilding of the, or, or kind of the, you know, letting African-American communities into what would be considered Southern white culture. There was segregation for that long. You think about that. That's, it's crazy that it took almost a hundred years for that to happen. And I think a lot of that just stems from the animosity that was caused by the war. Um, so it's, it's, um, this is like one of those things that's, it's kind of, kind of sucks to talk about, but I think it's the part that's forgotten the war, you know, that we won the war. Great. But what happened after? Right. Yeah. That's always the aftermath that. It's usually sometimes almost harder than the actual war because it's like you're building to produce to keep the war going, to keep your side moving. And then once they're gone and you're the defeated side, you're not really quite sure how to adjust to that. And if a lot of your trade capabilities have been destroyed, it's trying to figure out how do we start back up and get things rolling again. <clears throat> Meanwhile, it sounded like the North was pretty stringent on like the new policies for the South and like wanting to divide up the states and rename them and not let them to have like um, government positions, like not having our senators and House of Representatives and talk about a mess. It was, it seemed like the freeing of the slaves was Lincoln's idea, so he seemed like he had, I think, a contingency plan in place. At least he was thinking about one. But then when he got killed, then Johnson had to take over, and he wasn't really sure what Lincoln's plan was. So he was definitely favoring the South, like trying to take it easy on them. There were a lot of, like, what they called radical Republicans, people who wanted to kind of just slap the South more because they were angry at him. Um, so it's good that Johnson was trying to hold things back a bit and trying to let them build on their own, but still it would have been interesting to see how Lincoln would have put things back together because reading his papers and his thoughts before the war, there's actually some good books that just like hold all of Lincoln's writings and, um, he sounded like he really wanted to make sure things were good. And it like broke his heart to think that the war happened. And that he, like he talks in there like how he tried so much to make sure it didn't happen. He said in there that there were people in the South that wouldn't let it go without a fight. And there were people in the North that wouldn't let it like, end without a fight. So he saw it kind of was like, a building inevitability. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the whole ideas around blacks 
like there were some very strange ideas kind of operating in the south of the area like um they couldn't match up to white what they called like abilities um but that's definitely been disproven it's just like how well you train and how well you think um, but at that time that wasn't very obvious to a lot of white people so yeah it's just i guess it's one of those sad things about history and it did happen for a reason so we have to find those reasons and incorporate them into our lives now so that we can make good decisions on our own and then in groups for the betterment of everyone yeah i like that point it is a lot of times it's just too complex to generalize it into um you know you've got north south yeah but there's so many different opinions different motives that both sides had um, or individuals on both sides had so yeah it's uh it's difficult difficult to sort through in your mind but i like what you said tom kind of use it use it for your own personal uh, betterment is really the only way you can go with it yeah i think that's i think that's history in general we need to take away what's to be learned from all this because at the end of the day the goal is to to not fall back into another situation like this again um so if we can do everything in our power to avoid it that is ideal and the best way to avoid something is to understand how it happens and then to prevent that so that's why i think it's important to 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 really look at these things in depth and, and question why did this happen what caused this you know what what why did this very very um devastating event happen and how can we prevent that so that's why we're here talking about it guys and hopefully those of you who are listening have enjoyed listening to this uh this three-part series on the civil war and hopefully you've learned a little bit of something from from each episode um I know I've enjoyed this series immensely and I've enjoyed uh, doing the research for it. So we'll be bringing more of this, this style of content um, in the future. So we've got some plans. We've got some things in the works. Um, but I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of sad to stop my research, at least for right now in the civil war, I think we might revisit some things I think, you know, we didn't really spend a whole lot of time on certain battles and I'd like to maybe spend a little bit more time on certain battles like the battle of Gettysburg would be a cool one to do so you might see a, a full episode in the future just on some, some of the key points key takeaways from this because it's, it's all very interesting. Um, so yeah. Um, hopefully you guys have enjoyed this series foundations of freedom three-part series on the civil war hopefully you guys have all learned something and until next time 
stay strong, stay firm in your resolve to do good, help your fellow American, be a good person. But most importantly, remember what it means to be American. Stay strong. God bless.